5 p.m. It is now 6 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News being presented by The Independent. Stay tuned. Good evening. In the news tonight, the Arab Spring rears its head in Sudan. Trump declares Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization. And we take a look at city and state rent laws, which are up for renewal in June. You are listening to Indie Radio on WBAI 99.5, presented every Monday by The Independent, New York's progressive, reader-supported newspaper. I'm The Indie's associate editor, Peter Rue. Sudanese security forces attempted to break up an anti-government sit-in outside the headquarters of the military in the country's capital on Monday, setting off clashes in which a soldier was killed while protecting the protesters. Thousands rallied in front of the compound in Khartoum over the weekend in one of the biggest demonstrations since protests erupted in December calling for President Omar al-Bashir to step down. The protesters set up tents in an effort to replicate the mass sit-ins of the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011. In Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro is considering a dramatic change in the council that oversees the country's environmental policy. Bolsonaro wants to replace a broad-based panel of independent voices with a small group of political appointees. Activists fear the move could lead to more deforestation and less oversight in the nation that holds about 60% of the Amazon rainforest. Scientists see the Amazon as crucial for efforts to slow global warming and for world climate systems. A rhinoceros poacher in a South Africa wildlife preserve was stomped to death by an elephant and eaten by lions, authorities said Monday. Rangers at Kruger National Park found the poacher's skull and trousers. Prized for their horns, which are ground up and used in traditional Chinese medicine as a supposed cure for a variety of ailments, the world's rhinos are in danger of being hunted to extinction. President Trump announced Monday he's designating Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, a maneuver sure to escalate tensions between the two nations. The designation will lead to wide-ranging travel and economic restrictions on the 11 million member military group and those affiliated with it. The move comes after Trump pulled the United States out of the Iran nuclear agreement last year. The Obama-era deal lifted sanctions on Iran in return for it halting uranium enrichment activities. Iran's foreign minister said Monday he wants to include Middle East-based U.S. military forces on his country's terrorist group list. More on U.S.-Iranian relations later in the broadcast. Homeland Security Secretary Kirstjen Nielsen resigned Monday amid President Trump's growing frustration and bitterness over the number of Central American families crossing the southern border. Nielsen oversaw the administration's controversial family separation policy last year. Thousands of children and parents were separated at the U.S. southern border, and many have yet to be reunited. Jess Morales Rocchetto, chair of the immigrant rights group Families Belong Together, said in a statement that Nielsen is deserving of a court date in The Hague and called on Congress to replace her with a nominee who treats migrants humanely. Who's paying the price for New York Mayor Bill de Blasio's presidential ambitions? The answer, apparently, is the New York taxpayer. As the mayor weighs a White House bid, donations to his political action committee, Fairness PAC, are raising eyebrows. 
The city recently agreed to buy a number of buildings in Brooklyn and the Bronx from a de Blasio donor and ally, Frank Carone, a man long dogged by accusations of being a slumlord. An appraisal of the properties conducted by the Department of Housing Preservation and Development valued the buildings slated to become permanent housing for low-income New Yorkers at $50 million. A second appraisal conducted by a third party valued them at $143 million. The city ultimately agreed to pay $175 million. The pay-to-play shenanigans don't stop there. The firm Suffolk Construction hosted a fundraising event for the mayor in Boston on Friday. The company is seeking to expand its presence in New York and recently completed construction on a tower near Brooklyn Bridge Park that includes city-subsidized housing. In more local news, attempts by the Metropolitan Transportation Authority to implement facial recognition technology have so far been a failure. An internal MTA email obtained by the Wall Street Journal and published Sunday notes that the software was unable to detect a single face within acceptable parameters on the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge. Skeptics have raised concerns over privacy and the technology's inability to differentiate between non-white faces. Michael Laidlaw, the former head of human resources for the NYC Department of Social Services, was allowed to quietly resign in 2016 after allegations he groped an assistant were substantiated by city investigators. The incident came to light last week after Laidlaw's assistant, Jacqueline Torres, filed a sexual harassment suit against the city. Laidlaw is one of a number of city officials in recent years who have stepped down for sexual misconduct without the reason behind their departure being disclosed to the public. And the Whitney Museum was briefly occupied on Friday by activists calling for the removal of Warren Canders from the museum's board. Canders is CEO of the tear gas manufacturer Safariland, which has made millions of dollars in sales to the NYPD. More news after this break. Come back, Rosa Parks, from the back of the bus. Take the wheel from the city. Steer us back on the road Teach us how to walk in freedom Cause I'm gonna walk in freedom Even if it takes my life Welcome back. You're listening to Indie Radio on WBAI 99.5. And for our next segment, we're going to take a look at our rent laws here in the city and across the state. They're up for renewal in Albany this June. A new coalition of upstate and downstate activists has formed to push for substantial reforms. These include plugging up holes in the current rent regulations that allow for massive rent hikes and for expanding tenant protections statewide. 
To discuss all this and more, we're joined by Ava Farkas. She's executive director of the Metropolitan Housing Council, part of the Upstate-Downstate Housing Alliance. Thank you for being here, Ava. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, to get things going, I'd like to go through some of these key demands that the Housing Alliance is, is raising and to take a look at things, how things stand now and uh, how folks are pushing for things to be improved. Um, so to begin with... Um, I think a lot of folks, you know, we complain here in the city all the time about the cost uh, of living here and how rent keeps going up. But outside of New York City and some of the surrounding counties here, there are basically virtually no rent protections. Um, and that's led to a, like a major housing crisis upstate. Uh, so I take it this ties into the Emergency Tenant Protection Act of 1974. Ava, do you want to explain what that is for folks and how that works? Sure. So um, the Emergency Tenant Protection Act is what basically gives New York City and surrounding suburbs such as Nassau County, Westchester County, um, the right to regulate rents. And it's a system that came into place in the early 1970s after the phase out of rent control, which was in place since World War II. And the rationale behind having some type of limits on how much landlords can raise the rent is that New York City is in a housing crisis. We have an official shortage of rental housing. Um, we have to have a vacancy rate of less than 5% to have rent regulation. Mm. So there's uh, every three years, I believe, there's a survey of all available rentable, habitable housing. And if there's less than 5% of a vacancy rate, then that triggers a renewal of rent regulation. So that has existed since the 1970s. Um, you know, if we didn't have you can imagine what would happen. Landlords have total control over setting prices because there's just not enough choice for tenants. And that's the situation in the rest of the state. Um, uh, there, was, there are geographic restrictions to the Emergency Tenant Protection Act. So even if these, even though these conditions exist in other cities like Albany and Rochester and Syracuse, they're actually prohibited by law from enacting rent stabilization. And so that's what we're fighting to change. We're fighting to lift the geographic restrictions so that their cities and their municipalities can also decide for themselves whether to implement rent stabilization. And it also seems like a strategic maneuver, am I right? I mean, uh, it's harder for New York City's uh, rent laws to be watered down if, if the entire state is uh, is fighting, and we all have something to gain out of this. Uh, am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's been a history of tenants and the tenant movement being on the defensive, um, where landlords, the landlord lobby, Rebney, Rent Stabilization Association, they have poured tons of money um, into upstate uh, elected officials' coffers, um, even though they don't see this as an issue affecting their constituents. So we're actually making this issue hit home for them by bringing constituents of theirs who are organizing around housing issues and renter issues to meet with them and to advocate locally for this type of legislation. So, yeah, it totally changes the equation if upstate legislators are hearing 
that in their own communities, rental housing is at a crisis state right now. Yep, and, and now this is the first year really fully in about 60 years, as I understand it, that the uh, Democrats now control both houses of the state legislature. The Independent Democratic uh, Conference that really teamed up with Republicans was basically booted out in November. So this, this must present a real opportunity. It's totally a great opportunity. I mean, we're really thrilled. Met Council on Housing has been fighting this battle for many, many decades. And in 1997, we lost a lot of ground. Um, The landlords had a very aggressive political agenda. Um, At that time, the leader, Dean Skelos of the state Senate, um, was willing to um, flirt with the idea of totally dismantling rent regulation. And instead of doing that, they put in place all of these loopholes that will eventually phase out rent regulation if we don't stop it. And that is essentially what's been happening over the past 20 years. So we're really at a crisis moment. And, you know, this is like do or die for renters in New York City and around the state. And because of Trump, you know, ironically or not, you know, one of the worst landlords in New York City (laughs) becoming president and then people focusing locally on their organizing, we shed light on the fact that real estate interests have been propping up Republicans and have been propping up the IDC. And so they lost power because of great organizing that took place. And finally, we have a New York State Senate that is actually representative of people's interests. Um, and so, yeah, we have a great opportunity, like the stars are aligned uh, right now for housing justice. Yep. I mean, it seems like the election's only half the battle. It's really now about, or even part of the battle, now it's really about keeping people's feet to the fire, holding them there. Let's go through some of the demands that the Upstate Downstate Housing Alliance is pushing for. You're calling for an end to vacancy decontrolled. Do you want to explain what that is and how that's uh, impacting the housing situation here in the city? Yes. Mm. So vacancy decontrol is pretty much the the tool that landlords won in 1997 to phase out rent regulation. And what it does is that it takes apartments out of rent regulation once the rent reaches a threshold amount and the tenancy changes over. So right now that threshold amount is $2,700, And, um, when the apartments turn over, the units fall out of rent regulation, which means they no longer, the rent increases are totally determined by the landlord and tenants don't have the right to a renewal lease. So their, their tenancy is very precarious. And so that's led to the loss of uh, hundreds of thousands of units over the past like 20 years. And that's really the way that they're trying to totally dismantle the system. So we want to end vacancy decontrol. We don't believe that units should ever fall out of rent regulation. You know, if we're in a housing crisis, there's no reason why units should ever be deregulated from rent regulation. Yeah, but another thing you got you, you were calling for is this uh, end to the major capital improvement increases. That's, you know, when a landlord fixes up uh, an apartment building, they're allowed to raise the rent to a certain 
to a certain amount. I mean, folks, you know, listening might say, okay, if I'm a landlord and I, you know, paint the building again or, or do something else that sort of improves the, the life of uh, life in the building, I should be allowed to uh, in, in, increase the rent. That seems reasonable to folks, but that's uh, that's something you, uh, the Met Housing Council is opposed to. Um, you want to sort of outline why and, and how that's being abused? Sure. So major capital improvements, like you said, are building-wide improvements such as replacing the roof, putting in a new boiler, replacing all the windows on a building. And the on, on face value, yeah, it seems justified to pass this cost along to tenants, but it's incredibly unjust for a number of reasons, mm. the top one being that tenants will pay for the cost of that improvement forever. It never goes away. It's a permanent rent increase. So landlords make multiple times over the money back that they spent. Mm. The second reason is that they're improving the value of their property and the value of the building, and tenants are not benefiting from that. You know, the landlords can sell their building at a higher rate mm. because they've, you know, a higher price. Um, so, you know, we're not gaining as tenants from a landlord like increasing the value on their property. Um, and it's really becoming dire for many tenants in Queens and the Bronx, especially tenants are getting rent increases of hundreds of dollars um, a month because of MCIs. And so it's taken on a very predatory um, impact for tenants around the city where it may make the difference between whether a tenant can actually stay in their home or not. Mm. Well, Ava, we're running out of time, but I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, Cuomo says he's for a lot of these reforms, but on the other hand, his biggest donor block is the real estate industry. So uh, I, I take it there's, there's been a lot of activism, folks going up to Albany, folks writing letters, really uh, keeping up the pressure on, on our elected leaders, uh, folks who want to get involved. Uh, how do they plug in? How do they plug into this amazing housing activism that's going on right now? Yeah, we need... We need everybody involved who can be involved. Um, and so one way to plug in is if you're free Thursday night, come join us for the Moral March for Housing, which is taking place at 5.30 p.m. at Abyssinian Baptist Church, 132 West 138th Street. We're going to be rallying with um, the public advocate, the controller, Speaker Corey Johnson, um, and then we're going to march to the state office building to send a message to Governor Cuomo that he should stand with tenants and not with real estate donors. So we encourage anybody who is free Thursday to join us. If you're not free Thursday but you want to plug in, you can email us at the Met Council on Housing. Our email is info at metcouncilonhousing.org. Great. Thank you, Ava. There you have it, folks. Ways to plug in. Um, we're going to take a brief break. We've been talking to Marcus with the Met Housing Council, and you're listening to Indie Radio on WBAI 99.5. Back in a moment.
And welcome back. You're listening to Indie Radio on WBAI. And, uh, this is Peter Rue. And for our next segment, we're joined by Eric Stoner of WagingNonviolence.org. Eric is a longtime peace activist and a reporter who recently took part in a peace delegation to Iran. Um, so, Eric, uh, you know, we've known each other a long time, and I, I thought I'd have you on to discuss your trip. Um, but your visit came at a moment of escalate, escalating te- uh, tensions between Iran and the United States. Um, I mean, Trump just announced he's imposing new sanctions on Iran over its revolutionary guard. Um, it's a provocation. We got John Bolton in the White House as his security advisor. He's itching for war. Uh, so tell me about this peace delegation, how that played out, who you met, where you went, and uh, yeah, we'll start there. Yeah, so the organ- the trip was organized by Code Pink, the women's uh, peace group, and uh, the intention was really to, you know, try to meet with ordinary Iranians and and learn directly from them about the impacts of the current U.S. policy, uh, specifically uh, the travel ban. So Iranians, you know, aren't allowed to travel mm. uh, to the U.S. and there is a huge Iranian community here, and so that's there's a real tragic cost to that. But then also uh, the economic sanctions, which, like you said, were just expanded, uh, but that are really kind of draconian and uh, have, have had a huge impact on the lives of ordinary people in Iran. So we wanted to, to understand the impacts of the current U.S. policy and uh, kind of, uh, you know, yeah, see what that was like. Uh, we, we spent a few days in Tehran. Uh, we oddly had a pretty high-level access to the Iranian government. Um, uh, they wanted to make sure that we had their perspective mm. uh, on, on things. And so we actually met with the, the foreign minister, who is uh, one of the most powerful politicians in the country and uh, part of the reform camp who wants good relations with the West, who uh, actually negotiated the nuclear deal with John Kerry. Um, and uh, so that was a really fascinating experience and, and also kind of tragic because, uh, you know, he was very... I thought very charismatic, and, and I felt a lot of sympathy for, for most of uh, what he shared with us. And to think of, uh, you know, if we can't get along with this guy, it's hard to imagine a more, uh, you know, a better partner to, to negotiate with than this. So uh, if, you know, the fact that Trump unilaterally pulled out of the nuclear deal and imposed these sanctions, uh, you know, it's—, it's I. I can't imagine, you know, that we're going to have a, a better opportunity, uh, you know, right than we do right now, actually. Yep. And, uh, you know, I remember before the break, you were telling me uh, the, about meeting with Iranian students. And I thought it was an, you had an interesting story. I hope you'll share with folks, because uh, a lot of times there's, you know, demonstrations in Iran and it gets reported here. They're chanting death to America. Uh, but you had you had an interesting conversation with a Iranian activist there. What did she have to say? Yeah, so we went to the University of Tehran, which is the kind of leading university in the country, and we had a, a, a very interesting uh, in conversation with, with a room full of students and professors who are actually American studies students. And uh, the, the, the topic did come up of, you know, chanting death to America. And, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised, but th- there were some pretty strong opinions about that and some kind of defenses of it, uh, which... Um, you know, it was good for us to hear. Uh, you know, a woman stood up and said, you know, that she chants this often and um, that she means it, that it's a cathartic kind of experience because the U.S. has been, you know, has caused a lot of suffering and a lot mm. of pain 
uh, in this country for decades. Yeah. And, you know, that she's not, she said she wasn't trying to make friends and that, you know, it was something that made them feel better and was kind of an empowering act. Um, but, you know, also there were other people that said, we're kind of giving context to it, right? That death to America doesn't, you know, for some people doesn't literally mean death to America. It means uh, more like down with the American a policy or, or government or approach to Iran, right? Which has, has really caused incredible harm, you know? So I think there's a legitimate kind of critique there. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we think of Iran as a dictatorship, but it's a bit more nuanced than, uh, uh, than there's, there's some degree of freedom of speech, and I understand. I, what, what do people think of Donald Trump over there? Uh, I, I, you heard a variety of opinions. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you look at the region, Iran is probably one of the more open and democratic places. I mean, it's still very problematic in a lot of ways. But if you compare it to Saudi Arabia, right, which is our prime kind of ally in the region, Iran is definitely uh, more open and democratic, and mm. treats you know has mm. has uh, you know isn't repressing women in the same kind of way and lots of other issues. So hypocritical, right, our policy is and that we're coming down so hard on Iran and yet so close, right, with Saudi Arabia. Um, so, so that was kind of an interesting thing to, uh, uh, to, to realize. Yeah, and uh, so we're almost out of time. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, you were part of this delegation. Code Pink was there. Uh, a lot of American peace activists. How do folks plug in if they really, you know, don't want to see another war and uh, want to promote peace instead of this American first uh, Donald Trump uh, approach? Yeah, I mean, I think the key would be, right, to uh, to kind of be in solidarity. There are folks that are advocating for, uh, you know, uh, women's rights and for democracy in the country, and they are being uh, pretty harshly treated. Um, you know, they arrested thousands of, of folks over the last year, activists and dissidents, and we should be in solidarity and supportive of them. But I think the biggest thing for Americans mm. would be to try to do whatever you can to push back against John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and these folks who are just really uh, advocating for war, right? And the sanctions are a prelude to war, which they were in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing we can do is try to stop this thing from escalating because when, once we go to war, any kind of idea of like a mass authentic movement for democracy is kind of out of the question, right? So I think we have to do whatever we can to stop you know, the current government from, from taking us into another terrible war. Yeah, I mean, this has been a nice conversation because oftentimes we focus on local issues on this program and it's nice to take a bigger picture. Um, yeah, it seems like Trump is of two minds. Like, I remember during the election, he was very much... Uh, well, well, I'm getting signaled we're out of time here, folks. So uh, I'll wrap things up. You've been, uh, we'll continue this conversation in the future. You've been listening to Indie Radio News on WBAI 99.5. I'm Peter Rue, and please join us next week at 6 p.m. Mondays. Bye.
Monday, April 15th from 2 to 4 p.m. and from 7 to 9 p.m., the nation's top seven young jazz pianists are in New York for the American Jazz Pianist Competition, and WBAI will broadcast it live. If you'd like to attend, we have 30 tickets to the afternoon solo piano performance and another 30 for the evening jazz trio competition. That's the American Jazz Pianist Competition at Yamaha Artist Center in Manhattan, 689 Fifth Avenue. More info is at AmericanJazzPianistCompetition.org. And the first WBAI buddies who email me, Linda, at WBAI.org, will receive free tickets to either the afternoon or evening competition. That's Monday, April 15th, the American Jazz Pianist Competition at the Yamaha Artist Center. Attend if you're a WBAI buddy for free or listen for free live over WBAI New York. As Momia turns 65 on April 24th, the mobilization for Momia remains ever vigilant to obtain his release. While his case is on appeal in the Pennsylvania Superior Court, we say the people united will never be defeated. Join the Free Momia Abu-Jamal Coalition in Philadelphia on Saturday, April 27th. Celebrate the release of his new book, America's Favorite Pastime, Volume 11 of Murder, Inc. Trilogy. To reserve your seat on the bus, leaving from New York City, call the Free Momia Coalition Hotline, 212-330-8029. That's 212-330-8029. 